people ask me all the time, they say, Sir, how did you become such a well-trained and proficient orologist? Who are your inspirations and your mentors? By what means did you come by your vast store of orological knowledge? By what path did you become a giant in the hours game? And I tell them, the only thing I can tell them, YouTube. I'm not a trained orologist, of course. I'm just an actor playing one. But um, I do think that clocks are, are kind of fascinating and they're kind of an amazing technology. I'm talking about mechanical clocks. I have a, an old wall clock. And uh, it's accurate to about a minute a week, which is pretty typical. It's not a particularly high-end clock. It tick-tocks, so like, you know, two directions once a second. That's a million point two tick-tocks a week, and it's accurate to within a minute. That's 120 tick-tocks. It has to tick-tock a hundred thousand times before it misses one and it's all just mechanical gears we're talking about technology that's centuries old and i think that's kind of fascinating honestly um i was always kind of fascinated with clocks a little bit not not particularly but i always wanted to build a nice clock um mostly as a woodworking project more than as a clock but i came by this wall clock and i had to learn about fixing it a little bit and it was kind of an interesting process my wife's grandparents had this clock they owned a furniture store and this was a clock from their furniture store and their parents ended up with it and couldn't get it to run they talked to some horologists who you know told them the sensible thing that they would want to come and remove the movement from the clock and take it in and inspect it and clean it and properly lubricate it and then, uh, you know, come back and replace it in the clock. And that would cost about $500, which was pretty near to the value of the clock, so it didn't seem prudent to have that done. Anyway, uh, when my wife's father passed away and her mother was moving out of the house, uh, she wanted us to have the clock, and I didn't want it because I didn't want a clock that didn't work. <laughs> you know, didn't make any sense to me. Um, but that thing ticking away uh, w would be a significant reminder to my wife of both her grandparents and her father. So I wanted it to work, but I wasn't going to pay as much as it was worth to have it fixed. So I did go on YouTube, and I found out that um, some basic things is difficult to move a clock um, and get it running again. Though some of them have run for centuries that have stayed in place. So, you know, that proves Newton's law, I guess, that things in motion tend to stay in motion and things at rest tend to stay in rest, I guess, as much as I understand Newton. I probably read that at a, at a library <laughs> or a museum installation. But anyway, so I found out that really the clock needed to be in the right location. It needed to be free of like temperature changes and drafts. It needed to be uh, free of shaking. It couldn't be near a door or an exterior wall. This is why these were often in a hallway because it was the most temperature stable and vibration free part of the house. Also in an old like farmhouse 
wood paneling. Uh, it would it would create interesting acoustics for the clock in a hallway often. Um, but anyway, so I figured out that the processes of leveling, adjusting, minimally cleaning, and adjusting the tick on the clock could make it run again, and I got it running, which I think was pretty cool. Um, while we were, or while I was researching the clock, I looked at a lot of different clocks, and I also saw that there were these cool old shaker clocks that were pretty basic. They were kind of plain on the outside, built in that sort of, you know, uh, ordinary, uh, understated shaker style. Some of them had figured woods inside of them that were interesting, that sort of like contradicted the the homely exterior. I think about... I know that shakers and, and Quakers are different, but I just imagine one of those Quakers driving along in his, in his cart, but he's got a thrush muffler tattoo on his shoulder. That's kind of what my clock is. Anyway, I built that clock, too. It doesn't have a mechanical movement in it, though. Again, I think that mechanical clock technology is really fascinating because it's, uh, it's so physical, you know? A weight pulls down a wheel. The wheel helps spin a pendulum. The pendulum needs the introduction of a little bit of, in of energy to make it move, and it's perfectly balanced. And because it's perfectly balanced, it takes very, very little energy, and it can work very efficiently for a long, long time. And I think that's uh, I think that's fascinating. I, I think that that um, seeing the endpoint of the refinement of a particular technology is kind of interesting, understanding that that technology um, has been replaced by something, sort of instantly wiped it out. One of them's chiming in the background right now. Maybe you heard that. When I think about that, I wonder what YouTube has replaced you know the first time i remember getting useful information out of youtube you know first it's cat videos and stuff like that i was now here goes the other clock i was trying to help a buddy uh fix a part on his pickup and and we went well let's, let's youtube it and see what happens and we youtube it and a guy comes on i'm not showing my face because i work at the dealership the dealership's going to tell you this is six hundred dollars but i can fix it with some super glue in 10 minutes and you can too <laughs> takes the takes this little uh mechanical sender apart shows us where the shaft is broken off we're like yeah that looks like ours glued that thing back on put it back in and it it broke again but it lasted longer than it did originally and it was uh, fixable again and we're like wow youtube is magic and it may be I can understand why this guy's shop wouldn't want him sharing this information because it could partially make them obsolete. I'm wondering if it's going to make me obsolete as a teacher. I mean, if I really was going to be devoted to the study of orology, I could learn a heck of a lot about it from YouTube, and particularly as someone who already has tools and skills and has learned aspects of other trades, I could probably learn some of that stuff um, much more quickly than 
than I could without that background and experience. The question, I guess, becomes like, where do you get the background and experience or foundation from that to begin with? There's no doubt that things like YouTube have democratized a lot of these things, and I rely on it really heavily to learn new things when I'm trying to develop my, my crafts and my skills, and I have far fewer books around um, relative to those things than I used to. But on the other hand, a deep study of this of anything still requires the same amount of uh, of direct experience because there's no substitute for time hands-on time if you are interested in a deep study of something um, so you can become a quick expert on almost anything uh, much more easily now than you ever could before, but to, to become a, a true expert on something, I don't know that that's any easier than it ever was. I don't know if there are any shortcuts. In music, there's a, a, a remarkable wealth of information you can get online, um, you know, or through YouTube. A remarkable amount of training that's really useful to, to train musicians. I, I use it as a crutch and a shortcut all the time even though I should be using my ears sometimes sometimes I just need to learn the melody of a song and I'll go to a a lesson and somebody will just show it to me but you still got to get it under your fingers and I don't know that that's any easier than it used to be I think um, this pandemic and the and the way it's changed my life has really made me think seriously about time and the way time is structured and the way time is used. I think I've become more aware of the passing of hours and the passing of days and the sort of mandate to try to establish routines and use that time effectively and divide it between practice time and writing time and teaching time and crafting time and uh, having those hobbies and work patterns uh, has been a real gift during this thing and it makes those the utilization of those hours turn into the utilization of a day in a way that's really been productive and I've been really self-conscious about the passing of a day um, and now that I'm back in school the structure of a week is starting to become important to me. The day of the week establishes the routine. It's different by day. And the work that needs to get done and the work that wants to get done can negotiate over the course of the, of the week now. But in some other ways, I've lost all track of time relative to months or years or even seasons because, you know, here in this sweltering climate, it's the same season from the end of April till November. And even though it looks like a foggy November day outside, that's just ash falling from the sky that's blotting out the sun. So I've lost the scale at the larger level, even though I've become more focused on it at the particular level. And it's also sort of made me rethink a little bit the value of becoming a quick expert on something. In a day, you can become 
an horologist and fix your clock. As long as, like mine, your clock's not actually broken. It just needs some minimal cleaning and adjustment. If the clock had a damaged gear, I would need not only training and experience to reproduce that gear, I'd also need equipment. I mean, I'd need a, I'd need a giant lathe. And yes, they used to, you know, uh, file those by hand and that sort of thing. But, you know, of course, the experience to do that is much, much greater than the experience needed to turn one out on a lathe. Um, you know, the, the, the machine shops that a, a contemporary horologist uses are a labor-saving device that were designed to make easier the very, very difficult tasks of making these things by hand. And getting those things in the hands is so important. I've talked about it on the podcast before, but learning this stuff with your body is essential. When people talk about the great Spanish guitar uh, makers, for instance, they nearly always talk about uh, the master they apprenticed under and the process of that apprenticeship. And so if you, a lot of the great um, builders in Granada, for instance, um, apprenticed with Jose Ramirez in Madrid, and, and, and I mean, a lot of great guitar makers um, apprenticed uh, at the Ramirez shop and then later the Ramirez factory. And um, they started out doing very basic tasks, you know. They, they started by sawing out the little blocks that you use to glue on the top. There are hundreds of them on the top. They started out splitting braces out of uh, chunks of spruce. They started out um, you know, hand planing small interior pieces before they started to do the related tasks. So the hours and hours of sawing out those little blocks that you use to glue on the top, the precision you did that with, and the, and the learned experience in your body would then train you to cut the frets in the fingerboard of the guitar. And the placement of those obviously is critical to the function of the instrument. One of them's off and the guitar is ruined no matter how perfectly built or beautiful it is. Um, you split those braces and you get a sense of how that wood grain works. And when you split off a chunk of the neck, you won't bust off the headstock if you know how it's going to run, if you have some predictability in that. When you've hand planed the little interior parts, bridge plates and other sort of small pieces, then you'll have a greater sensitivity to the feeling of the plane in your hands while you do the top or the back or the sides, the parts of the guitar that that sort of not only really matter, they all really matter, but um, in terms of the parts that show. And that work is all hourly work, which is to say that apprentice work is where you do things paying attention to the passage of hours and not worrying so much about the passage of days worrying a lot about the parts of the instrument, but not worrying about um, the whole instrument. Worrying about it one part at a time until you have the whole thing assembled, and only recognizing the whole thing is assembled um, after the parts have been carefully created 
one day at a time. Sorry, I mean one piece at a time. I'm blending together time and things right now in an interesting way, in a way that obviously making a clock blends together time and things. I guess uh, it appeals to me, the clock part of it, as, a, as someone who's interested in craftsmanship because it combines those things as a, as a sort of constant reminder to pay attention. There's a little flaw that I won't point out in my, in my wall clock that I built and hung in the kitchen that drives me crazy. And, you know, it probably saved me a couple of hours to leave the flaw, but it's there forever. And the excuse of it saved me a couple of hours and 20 bucks or whatever means really nothing to me now. It just bothers me. One of these days I'm going to have to redo the part. I won't point it out because if you see it, it might not matter. You might not notice it, but I certainly do. I guess I'm just thinking about in this that we're all sort of in a position right now where we're playing the long game. Or maybe not. Some people, I think, are just maybe carrying on like there's not a pandemic raging outside. I, I'm looking at the numbers and I'm concerned about it, particularly since it's blowing up on my campus at this point. Um, and if you're doing that, then you'll either get sick and you won't, or you won't get sick and you might not think about this period of time. But I think most of us are are focused on this at this point and asking us asking ourselves uh, how we're going to play the long game and i think that the way you play the long game productively i hope for me anyway is that you start paying attention to the hours you build a routine that will get you to a place where you're getting better results than you got before and i think for me i've I'm anxious to get back to performing live music. I'm desperately anxious to get back to talking to my students face-to-face -face in a live setting. I'm missing being around friends in, in a way that we're not worried about it, um, obviously. But at the hourly level, things are going on maybe better than normal. And if I can think of those uh, hours as an apprenticeship towards a future that's better, more productive, more creative, um, and maybe even better, I don't know, in other sort of social and emotional ways than the way I was doing it before, then I can come out of the end of this thing, whenever that is, in a, in, a, in a way that's a lot better. And I'm really sort of focused on it now because, you know, it's uh, unsafe to go outside, not just because of the pandemic right now, but because the air quality index is running at around 300 right now. And it's unhealthy for all groups, I think, is the, is the designation. But putting in that apprenticeship inside and trying to learn something deeply rather than quickly um, would be a good model for me to remember and go back to 
even though I'm going to dip into the YouTube catalog occasionally to get some quick information on something that ultimately I'm probably not really that interested in making a life out of, but I want to fix right now. In the meantime, I'm playing the hours game, and I truly think it's going to pay off for me. Be well, friends.